This season of Lent, we've been looking at various exoduses in Scripture. It began with the exodus from Eden, and then from Egypt twice, the exodus back home for Jacob, and there are plenty, of more, plenty more exoduses to read about in our Scripture. But our time seems to be getting cut short. So far, we've seen how each one of these exoduses has resulted from sin. Leaving Eden was part of the judgment for sin. Abram's sin of leaving the promise of God led him to Egypt, and his placing his life above fear of God led him to being kicked out of Egypt. Jacob's deceit forced him to find refuge with his uncle. And when he started to not get along with his uncle and tensions start to brew with him, then he went back home. The Israelites had a front row seat observing God deliver them from Pharaoh's army and yet forgot his goodness and so wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before entering the promised land. And I believe next week Pastor Hart was going to cover the exodus from the place that God sent the Israelites to for judgment for their sin, the exodus back home from Babylon. Tonight's exodus is one that all believers ought to look forward to, and one that the world has been trying to write off since the beginning of time, the beginning of sin, I should say. You can't talk about the exoduses in Scripture and not mention this one, because it's the greatest one. The last exodus is for everyone. But what is this exodus? I'll invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 25, as I read verses 31 through 33, and we find out what this last exodus is. Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 31, reading in Jesus' name. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Father God, these are your words, and your word is true. We pray this evening that you would sanctify us in your truth, that you would cause our hearts to be turned once again to you. We thank you again for your word. Thank you for giving us this time together as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here Jesus mentions his return. And he mentions his return, and his return is going to be unlike anything anyone has ever experienced or imagined before. Jesus tells us in verse 31 that the Son of Man will be coming in all of his glory. We have Jesus, the Son of Man, explained to us in Scripture. And we're familiar with his humanity. We know that Jesus is true man. He identified with us. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. He entered into this world the same way as anyone else has entered, enters into this world. His conception was a little different, but the entrance was the same. He learned the things that babies learn. He toddled as a toddler. He learned skills as you and I learn skills. And having emptied himself, he submitted himself to the limitations of creation, the limitations that you and I have. He hungered. He thirsted. He grew tired and weary. And he too was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He made it very clear that he came, what he came to do while he was here, and the whole purpose for his first coming. He came to save sinners. He came to bind the strong man. He came to give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, mobility to the lame, but most importantly, freedom to the captives. He came to reverse the curse that the first sin in the Garden of Eden brought into this world. 
In order to do that, however, he needed to die. And so he humbled himself, humbling himself to the point of death, even an excruciating death by means of crucifixion. And he was pierced, he was crushed, he was beaten, he was spat upon, he was rejected. He was suspended on a pole, hanged on a tree, and lifted up that he might draw all men unto himself. Throughout Scripture, we see Jesus' humanity. It's made clear to us. It's made known to us. We see his frailty that he has as Christ dies on the cross. Now, none of that sounds too pleasant. It doesn't sound like anything anyone would want to volunteer for, and yet here Christ did willingly. He did it because he knew the end result. He did it because by it, he would accomplish salvation and redemption. He would obtain the righteousness that the law of God required of all people, required of anyone wishing to be saved. He did it because it was his Father's plan from before the foundation of the world that sinners might have hope and that they would have forgiveness and life and eternal life at that. He took on himself our sin, becoming accursed for you and for me. However, he didn't stay accursed, and he is no longer dead. He rose again from the dead, and for 40 days he continued to walk on this earth until he ascended into heaven. And then at his ascension, the promise was given from Acts chapter 1 that the angels say as the crowd are gathered there at Galilee. And the angel says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. This wasn't totally new information for them. It was a reminder. The angels reminded them of what Jesus had said earlier from John 14 and other places throughout his ministry. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus had told them plainly that he will return and that at his return, he would take them to be with him forever. And the scripture reveals Jesus to be the true God and true man. And we all have our own concepts of what God is like and how we imagine God might be. And we often think of Jesus only in terms of his humanity and we limit him because this humanity defines him and it limits him in our minds. When in reality, he no longer has those same limitations that we have. Christ can be truly present in all places, unlike you and I. And yet he is still complete and whole man, true God and true man. And now Christ is glorified. That same glory that he had emptied himself of when he walked on this earth is his again. And it's been restored to him. And it's this glory that accompanies him when he comes back. Think of it. God Almighty, the creator of the universe, the resurrection and the life, the Lord of heaven and earth, is coming against his creation in all of his glory. Jesus mentions that his glory isn't the only thing accompanying him at his return. But the text says, Jesus says that all the angels with him, myriads and myriads of angels accompanying Jesus as he returns and sits on his glorious throne, what an awesome and terrifying day that will be. Jesus isn't coming back just for a visit. He's not coming to check on things to see how we're doing and how we're handling life. When Jesus returns, he's coming in all of his glory 
for judgment. And no one will be exempt. Jesus mentions here in verse 32 that all the nations will be gathered before his throne. And this group of people is going to be bigger than anything that you've ever experienced before. It'll be bigger than the 334 million people the 2020 census is expecting in the U.S. It'll be bigger than the 7.77 billion people that are alive and walking on this earth right now. Jesus said, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Jesus says that all the dead will rise, meaning that anyone and everyone who has ever lived, everyone who has ever been conceived, will stand before this throne of God at Christ's return. And this final judgment will be given. And it will be the last exodus for everyone. There will be no escaping or leaving the destination to where you are going. It's final. And no one gets a free pass. There won't be any mulligans either. You don't get any do-overs. Jesus' judgment is going to be final. And there are only two judgments that he will make in one destination for each judgment. The sheep will be separated from the goats. One group to his right and the other group to his left. The ones on his right have a wonderful destination to look forward to. Verse 34 says that, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He identifies this group as being blessed of God. And to those whom God has been preparing a kingdom for since the beginning of creation, Jesus wasn't lying when he's saying, Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. But he is coming back to take us there, to be with him forever. This exodus will be a final deliverance from sin. And no longer will anyone sin ever again. No longer will you have any more sinful cravings or desires or thoughts or impulses. No longer will you be sinned against either. And all of the effects of sin will be done away with once and for all. All sickness, all disease, fallen creation will no longer be fallen. Death and decay will no longer be around. And this kingdom that God is preparing and has prepared from before the foundation of the world is going to be great. And all things will be restored to the way they were intended to be. Very good. Just as the Almighty Creator originally intended. And to those on Jesus' left, they too will have an exodus of sorts. And they will depart for a place that was never meant for them. Notice what Jesus says in verse 41. He says this, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. This place was never intended to be a destination for people. It was a place prepared solely for the angels that rebelled against God. However, it will be the destination for all who have rebelled against him. And unfortunately, that includes people, the very people whom God has loved, the very people whom God has sent his son to save yet the very people who have rejected God. And this verse speaks loud and clear to the ones who are convinced that a loving God would never send anyone to hell. This verse is clear that it was never meant to be for people, but it is the just destination for those who have rebelled against God. 
But God is not to be blamed for sending people to hell because that was never his plan. That was never his desire, never his intent. Instead, he desires that all would be saved. But again, for those who refuse to believe in the one God, in the one whom God sent to save, for those who love the darkness rather than the light, and for those who have chosen rebellion against God and rejecting Jesus, they have rejected the one whom God has sent to save them from hell. And they have chosen hell for themselves, the place of eternal punishment, eternal fire, and everlasting damnation, the place where they will forever be separated from God and forever and always be under a curse. The question must then be asked, what makes a goat a goat and a sheep a sheep? What determines whether one is a sheep or one is a goat? In the passage where Jesus says the dead will rise in John 5, he continues to say what will happen. And those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And it seems here like Jesus is proclaiming salvation by works, doesn't it? Depending on how good your life is, on on how well you've lived your life, or how good you've been to others will determine, it seems like that's what's going to determine where you end up. Jesus explains that idea in verses 35 through 45. And again, at first glance, it seems that what it all comes down to is how you take care of the down and outs in society. That's generally the takeaway that you get from this passage. But it's more than that. Jesus gets to it in verse 37 when he references the group that he is addressing here. How is it that he addresses this group in verse 37? How is it that he addresses the sheep on his right that will be brought to be live with him for all eternity? What does he say about them? He calls them righteous. They aren't righteous because they've done all these good things for Jesus, but rather since they are righteous, this is what they do. Even the sheep are surprised by it, and they ask Jesus, what do you mean? When did we see you alone? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in? When did we see you naked and clothe you? When were you sick and in prison? When did we come to you? Jesus tells them, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. The righteous serve Christ without even knowing it. But on the other hand, there's the unrighteous goats that will be scratching their heads when they hear that they have neglected Jesus. And you can hear the excuses even now. But I never saw you, Jesus. Jesus, I didn't know that that was you. I didn't know you were real. You've got to let me go on this one. Come on, cut me some slack. And the list can go on and on. Jesus mentions his hiding behind the least of these in verse 45. And these brothers of mine in verse 40. Who are these people? Are these people every stranger, every sick person, every prisoner? He defines them as his brothers in verse 40. So the question is, who are his brothers? And Jesus refers to the ones who do the will of his father earlier in his ministry as his mother, his brother, and his sister. One commentary suggested something that seems to make a lot of sense to me. Jeffrey Gibbs suggests that the brothers of Jesus are all of those Christians who are sent in missionary context to spread the good news of the reign of God in Jesus. In his day and back in that day when you invited a stranger into your home or invited a traveling, a traveling preacher into your home, it was because you agreed with their message. 
You weren't just welcoming a stranger. You were welcoming everything they stood for, everything that they were proclaiming and preaching and believing. So for those who first welcomed these first apostles and the other proclaimers of Christ, they weren't just doing a good deed for Jesus. They were accepting this message. They were accepting the message about Christ and what he has come to do. And they were, in fact, welcoming Christ, receiving and accepting the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has come to do for each one of us. What made them righteous wasn't how they acted or responded, but the message that they had received. The good news about Jesus had come to them, and they had received it and believed it. The other category not only rejected these first evangelists, but scorned their message, and they rejected the Savior. And so they were condemned because of their rejection. The basis of this judgment isn't about good deeds or neglect. It's not about how many poor people you've helped out throughout your lifetime. The basis of this judgment will be what people have done with Jesus. And it always, always comes down to Jesus. Jesus is the one who credits man with his righteousness, something that you and I could never earn on our own. And that's the only way anyone will ever be counted righteous in God's sight, is being judged by Christ's righteousness and not your own. It's always been that way. Man has only ever been righteous by faith in Jesus. Scripture is clear in that. The just will live by faith. And that's what determines whether one is a goat or a sheep. Are you trusting in Jesus? Or are you trusting in something else, anything else? Jesus is coming again. And he is coming again in all of his glory. And scripture says, Jesus says in the end of Revelation, Behold, I am coming quickly. And when he does, he will make his judgment. And we'll all be sent on our final, last exodus. When, where will the last exodus take you? Will it take you to heaven to be with our Savior forever? Or will it take you to hell to be eternally separated from the one who gave his only son for you? Hear the words of Jesus. He who believes in Jesus is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus, the Son of Man, is coming again in all of his glory. And the question for you today and every day, the question for every person is, will you be ready? Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word and for its truth. We thank you that you come to us through your word, and your word reveals to us what you have done in order that we might be saved, that your word reveals to us Christ and delivers to us Christ. Father, help us to believe your word, to believe in your Son, our Savior and Lord, to believe that Jesus is both God and man, and that he came to redeem us and to save us from sin, death, and the devil. Jesus, I pray that you would help each one of us here today to be ready for your return, and help us also to share the message with those around us, so that all people, Lord, everyone who you have died for and who you love, who you desire to be with you in heaven forever, would know what you have done in order to save them, that it might be possible for them to be saved and forgiven. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.